Revelation chapter 2. I'll be reading the first seven verses. Revelation chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of God. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, these things says he holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we look again at this passage, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, the letter to the church in Ephesus in which Christ warns the church not to lose its first love. Now last week I talked about the fact that Ephesus is the almost perfect, almost perfect perfect church. Founded by Paul, perhaps the greatest of the apostles, some of his early leaders included Timothy and John. It had suffered much. It had been persecuted for the cause of Christ, and yet laboring and persevering with patience through it all. The church even held judicial trials, church trials, in order to discipline false teachers, and in effect to cast them out to excommunicate those who would lead the church astray. The people could not stand evil men, but rather loved the truth. And yet, with all that marvelous description, it wasn't a perfect church. Things were not right. You know, the Titanic was an almost perfect ship. Did you know that? Mm. What happened to it, children? April 15, 1912. It's at the bottom of the ocean now. It's a rusting hulk. You can have a marvelous, marvelous ship that ends up in ruins because of the pride of man. That's exactly what happened. So it is, we could argue, with regard to the church at Ephesus. It was a church in very grave danger. As a matter of fact, Christ was warning as he is walking in the midst of the candlesticks, he's representing the churches. He's warning that despite the great start, if they did not repent, if they lost their first love, that church would be 
no more. And so we have seen throughout church history of churches that have started well and yet have ended up as wrecks and ruins. This sermon is part of a series on the book of Revelation. We've already mentioned in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ has signed or symbolized this apocalypse. Uh, that is to say that uh, he is the one who, uh, who uh, has given it in uh, symbolism. Uh, he is revealed in his glory in chapter 1 as he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands representing the churches and the stars, seven stars in his hands, remember, representing the elder, the, the messenger, the angels of those churches, as I suggested, I think, the elders, the presbyters taken as a collective whole. But chapters 2 and 3, then, consist of seven letters to very prominent churches, or, as I've suggested, presbyteries, regional churches in Asia Minor. So Jesus, as he customarily does in these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus begins with a commendation, a, a praise, if you will. He talks about the deeds, the toil, the perseverance of the church at Ephesus. And he also talks about the fact that they were opposed to evil. That's good. We ought to be opposed to evil. We ought to hate the things that God hates. Right? Hate them that hate thee, O Lord. Psalm 139. And yet now, having heard the commendation, we now come to the condemnation. Where Jesus says, verse 4, But, nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, children, to be scolded is never a pleasant thing. You don't like it when your mom has to take you to task, has to discipline you. It's not fun. But, my friends, to be taken to task by the Lord of glory, that is an awesome and perhaps terrifying thing. And that's what we have here. It's because the Lord Jesus in chapter 1 is portrayed with omniscient eyes, eyes that are burning, feet with that, that are bronze, that are glowing, if you will, the sword coming out of his mouth. To be, to be taken to task by Jesus, who knows us better than we know ourselves, this is not a pleasant thing. And so what does he have against them? Well, basically, he says it in verse 4, that you have left your first love. That you have left your first love. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, one of the things that undoubtedly it means was a self-glorying. A self-glorying. You see, there was a tendency among the Ephesians not to do their works for Christ's glory. So they had all these great works, wonderful. But were they really doing them for the glory and honor of Christ? Were they really doing them out of love for Christ? Or as maybe a duty? You know, we read from Zechariah 7 today. If you read Zechariah 7 and 8, uh, there's the question that is posed by the 
uh, by the Jews whether they should observe the, the fast going forward. And you know how God responds? He says, all that time that you were observing this fast, did you do it for me? Really? Did you really do it for me? Or were you just doing it to do it? This self-glorying can and does lead ultimately to trusting in one's own works. It's subtle at first to fall away. It is subtle. And yet, once you start moving in that direction, you see, it can become very dangerous. Closely related to self-glorying is a lack of fervent devotion. A wife, for example, can be seemingly very faithful as she bustles about doing her work for her husband. But there can still be a lessening of love, or the same with the husband, seemingly devoted to his wife, and yet, at the root, there may be an issue there. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2, or 1 Corinthians 13, Jesus talks about, uh, or Paul talks about the necessity of love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And so they had left their first love. Now what is the first love then? Well, in the first place, we could say it is that love which you first felt and experienced when you came to Christ. Perhaps you came from a horrible life of sin, when you heard of a Savior who loved you so much that he died for you on a cross. But in any case, your love was fervent. Your zeal was hot for this Jesus. But now the fervor, the heat of your love has cooled down. This term, however, could also refer, besides that, could also refer to that object which is to what your first or highest love is directed, namely the Lord Jesus. Jesus said that the first and greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But already among the Ephesians, people had crept in unawares who did not truly have that faith. This is always the case in terms of the visible church. We have the institution, we have the visible church, and then you have what we call the invisible church, those that are really converted. And inevitably, within the visible church, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody in particular, I'm just making a general statement. Within the visible church, it's almost inevitable that there are going to be people who are not really converted. And so people had crept in unawares who professed faith but didn't really love Christ. And here you see the church was still sound doctrinally. They were practically perfect theologically. They hated the Nicolaitans. They hated 
false worship. They hated false doctrine. They were ready, they were willing to conduct church trials to kick out those who were not sound doctrinally. But the omniscient Christ, the Christ who knows all things, with his burning eyes, sees the condition of the heart. You know, there are many grave warnings regarding hypocrisy and apostasy. You remember the words uh, of uh, the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 7. Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, what does he say there? Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who practice lawlessness. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. There are ministers. There are ministers evangelical ministers who have turned out to be atheists. And so that's the warning here. That's the warning. Now my friends, what are the characteristics of this loss of your first love? Coldness toward the things of God. Coldness towards the things of God. It's the basics. Bible reading, private prayer, being content with the status quo in your life, not wanting to make spiritual progress. Just like if in athletics, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. Mm -hmm. There's no status quo. You, all, you need to strive for that next level and running the 40-yard dash, right? And so it is with the Christian life as well. Coldness. Coldness towards the things, well, it's time to read the Bible. And I confess that that can be true of me. None of us is immune to this. A lackadaisical attitude toward the church and her worship. Not wanting to come to church. Not coming to church. Or even believing, for example, that entertainment is more important than the genuine worship of God. And so these are characteristics of this loss of your first love. But what are the causes of the loss of your first love? Well, notice something very interesting. It, 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 you, see the, you see what it says in verse 4? It's not just the loss of your first love. It's that you have left your first love. In other words, this implies that there's a deliberate going away from it. It's not just that you've lost it, like 
oh, I, you know, was, uh, you know, I lost the $20 bill that, you know, slipped out of my pocket or whatever. There's a deliberateness here that, that's implied. It's not just that you've lost it, but you've left it. So how do you leave your first love? Well, by means of worldliness, friendship with worldly values and people with whom do you like to be? With whom do you have fellowship, if you will, community, communion? Is it with God's people or is it with the world and the things of the world? Do you taste those worldly things? Is that, is that what you love to devour? Is that where your taste is? Sensuousness. Sensuous. Being, giving yourself over to the, the senses, that is to say, the, the lust and so forth. If you look at uh, 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, and verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. 1 Peter 4, verse 3, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelry, drinking parties, and abominable, hateful idolatries, despicable idolatries. 2 Peter 2, verses 12 through 14. 2 Peter 2, starting in verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish and corrupt, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse, to party in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Sensuousness giving yourselves over to the, the lust of the eyes. Selfishness. It's all about you, do you understand? It's all about you. Life is all about you, isn't it? No, it really isn't. And one other, and that is busyness. Busyness. And this is particularly a danger to ministers. I confess to you, being so busy that you forget about the king. Almost half a century ago, Joe Moorcraft gave me the admonition when I became a ministerial candidate as the first step in being a minister. And I'll never forget it. He said, don't be so busy about the kingdom that you forget about the king. And that has stuck with me, although I've not always acted appropriately. But that saying has always stuck with me. Busyness. Busy. Lord, haven't we done all these things? So how do you rekindle the flame? How do you rekindle it? Well, we have the means of grace. What are the means of grace? Prayer. The Word. 
being in the Word every day, the words, the sacraments, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, to be given over to the Lord. And so we have the means of grace, but of course those are not means in themselves. They are in order to lead us to give ourselves wholly, fully to Christ. That's how you rekindle the flame. You give yourself wholly, fully to Christ. You cry out, Lord, have mercy. You cry out, Lord, I know I don't love thee as I ought. Give me that love. Give me, rekindle that flame. Give that to me. Lest I leave my first love. Well, having heard the condemnation, we now hear the warning, but also the promise. Notice the exhortation. Notice the exhortation. Verse 5. First of all, remember. Remember. Remember continuously. That's the implication here. Remember continuously the high place from which you've fallen. That's what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember the, we can say, remember the good old days when the fires were still burning hot. And remember the great God who is your first love. Remember. Then he says, repent. That's in the aorist tense. That's punctilious. It's, it's repent. Let us say, do it now. Repent. Grieve your sin and turn from it. Get rid of that debris. Remember we talked last week about the river Caister, C-A-Y-S-T-E-R, that piled up all the silt. Remember that? The silt would keep on piling up like the Mississippi River does. And they had to dredge. They had to get rid of all that debris. Well, that in a sense is what you have here. Get rid of that debris. They would have, they would have known about the Caister River. Repent. And then do the first deeds, the first works, or do the deeds you do at first. Again, the aorist tense. Do them. Now, what does Jesus say the work of God is? The work of God, according to Jesus, is to believe on him who God has sent. That's the work of God. That's the work in which we are to engage, fundamentally. It's not all the deeds, the particular deeds that we do, the helping the little lady across the street, the witnessing and so forth. The fundamental work of God is to believe on him, on Jesus, whom God has sent. Faith, of course, is the foundation. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The first deeds, then, the first deeds are those basic things of which we need to be constantly reminded. Faith. Faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace. It's faith by, by the grace of God through faith, but it's because of the grace of God. Repentance. We need to turn from our wicked ways. Repentance. Prayer. 
We are called upon to pray, to, to lay our petitions before God. Zeal. Zeal, including fighting the good fight of faith, Ephesians 6. And, of course, love itself. Ephesians 5, verse 2, and walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Well, not only are we told here to remember and repent and return, but verse 7, we're called upon to listen. He who has an ear. As you know, Jesus used this formula in his parables. In Matthew 13, verse 9, he who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. This reference to an ear lends a personal, individual touch. He who has an ear. Do you have an ear? Are you hearing? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church. But not only, then, do we have the warning or the exhortation but we also have the warning itself. He says, Jesus says here, I am coming to you. I am coming to you. Now, how happy it is to have the Lord come in order to give us his favor. But here, the Lord is coming in judgment. He says very clearly, I am coming to you. Verse 5, I will come to you. Indeed, he will come quickly, he says and he will remove your lampstand out of its place. Jesus is saying, if the church at Ephesus did not repent, it would cease to exist as a part of the true church. The word for remove there is kineso, as in kinetic energy, as in kinetic energy. Remember the river, the caster, as it kept piling up silt, and that the city had to keep on moving? Because of that, moving closer to the, to the sea, even so would the church be moved out of its place. My friends, in point of fact, that's exactly what happened. Judgment did come. You know, it's interesting that not only does the church no longer exist, this almost perfect church, it's no longer there. Not only that... But in God's judgment, in Christ's judgment, the city doesn't exist either. It's just ruins to that. So if you want to study archaeology, a great place. That's all it is. It's just ruins. There is a small settlement near there called Ayasaluk, which translates to Saint Theologian. In other words, a reference to Saint John through whom Jesus gave the book of Revelation. A reminder. But other than that, there's no church. There's no city. So there's a warning. But it didn't have to be that way, did it? Because there's a promise. There's a promise that Jesus gives. There's a way out of this. Notice what he says. Verse 7, the one who overcomes. Here, it's in the present tense. It's continuous. It's the unbroken, triumphant experience of everyday living to him who lives his life and who is triumphant, is victorious, the one who overcomes. 
you know, the Lord Jesus lived on earth a completely triumphant life. And so we too must be fighting and overcoming. To him who overcomes, Jesus says. What does he promise? He promises eternal life, and he does so in two figures. First of all, the tree of life. The tree of life. Now, you remember children in the Garden of Eden before the fall. You had not only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you also had the tree of life. That tree of life is the figure used in Genesis 3, a sacred symbol that life is found in God alone. It's also a means of life. It's a means of life, ultimately, because it was pointing to the covenant by which we meet God in righteousness and holiness and truth. I will give you a tree. Christ promises to give of this tree's fruit. But we must partake now on earth, not physically, of course, but spiritually. We must partake now on earth in order to partake in heaven. And he, but he promises, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is heaven, here referred to as paradise, even as Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Luke 23. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I have three points of application today. The first is this. Respect the warning. Respect the warning. We hear warning labels. We see we see we hear warnings. We see warning labels. Poison, danger, high voltage. Respect the warning. We dare not think that we are any better than this outwardly faithful church. Ephesus had it all going for him. And by God's grace, we have a lot going for us here. I praise God for this congregation. We don't think we cannot have our candlestick removed. Respect the warning. Number two, repent. Repent. Don't waste this opportunity. Go out to meet the Lord before he comes in judgment against us. Go out to meet the Lord. Embrace him. Repent. Number three, remember that without love, the church is nothing. Without love, the church is nothing. Without love, all the great activities and actions of a church, including good theology, proper worship, and biblical church discipline, and evangelistic and other programs, may be nothing more activity, as one person has put it, nickels, numbers, and noise. Nickels, numbers, and noise. Great, you know, you read, you read sometimes, uh, you know, on Facebook or whatever, you read about, oh, it was wonderful, you know, the music was great, and, you know, all this stuff. But how many, how many times do you read, this church was characterized by a fervent love for Christ, and that's why I'm giving it five stars. Because otherwise, it's nickels, numbers, and noise. 
Without love, the necessary root to sustain genuine activities is missing. And therefore, we must cultivate love for Christ. We do so as we think on his sacrifice and as we contemplate eternal life with him, with him, whose not, not only whose eyes are like these burning lamps, but with him who literally will still have the wounds in his hands for all eternity. James Henley Thornwell was a famous Southern Presbyterian theologian, died in 1862. And as he was losing consciousness, he, he, cri he cried out, wonderful, beautiful, nothing but space, expanse, expanse, expanse. Samuel Rutherford was a great 17th century theologian in Great Britain. He wrote a poem. Let me read you some of the some of the stanzas. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king therein is beauty without. A veil is seen, it were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain. The deep, sweet well of love, the streams on earth, I've tasted more deep I'll drink above there to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand and glory glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land the bride eyes not her garment but her dear bridegroom's face I will not gaze at glory but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gifted, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And my friends, I speak to myself today when I say we must not love merely the doctrine, but we must love the person of Christ. Amen. And may we never leave our first love. Amen. Can you please stand for prayer? And now our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit will indeed work in our midst 
and give us a deep love for the one who has deeply loved us. The one who is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. So be pleased to do that, Lord, in the heart of everyone here at this moment. May thy spirit who speaks to the churches speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.